Ruth chapter 3 is where we are as we continue our series. And if you remember, the first chapter of Ruth tells a story of weeping. It's a chapter filled with tears, full of disappointment. Uh, it's a very difficult chapter. And then chapter 2 spoke of working days. That's what we talked about last week in which Ruth goes out and she gleans in the, in the fields of Boaz and how God, through Boaz, made provision for Ruth and Naomi. So, so as Ruth came and gleaned in the fields of Boaz. And then next week, chapter 4 is, is going to be a chapter of wedding joys. And, but, but first, before we get there, there must be a night of seeking and a night of waiting. And in, in, in many ways, chapter 3 is the most difficult chapter in Ruth to understand Yet it's essential to the story and it's essential to the revelation of God's salvation for us as, as mankind. And chapter 3 is a chapter, and, and I hate to say the word because it, we're allergic to it in, in America. It's a chapter of w- w- waiting. <laughs> Wait is a four-letter word in more ways than one for us, isn't it? And so uh, ultimately at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that's all that Ruth could do is wait to see what God does. So uh, we're, we're going to be, pick it up in verse one in just a moment. Before we do, let me just say this, that, that the, it seems as if, well, we're, it doesn't just seem, I'm, we're positive. We know that several weeks has passed between the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Now, when we read it, you know, we don't, we don't get a sense of the passing of time but there's some things that they tell us that tells us, it lets us know that there is some time that has passed because the events of this chapter, we know, and we're going to see it, they occur during the barley winnowing time. And of course, that's different than the harvest. Uh, winnowing is when they would separate the grain from the stalks. Harvest is when they cut down the stalks, and then later they would winnow it to get the, the grain uh, separated from the stalks. And so this is during the barley winnowing time, which was, it probably happened after both the barley and the wheat harvest because barley harvest would come in and then right on the heels of that wheat harvest would come in and then they would start to winnow the barley and then after that winnow the wheat. And so the barley harvest we know uh, begins in late April, maybe, uh, late, uh, maybe early May. And then the wheat uh, uh, harvest immediately followed that. And so chapter three probably takes place somewhere in the neighborhood of early June, possibly late May, but probably early June. So let's read chapter three, verse one. One day, Naomi, her uh, mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servants girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, this whole chapter is precipitated and and really set in motion by one great concern on the part of Naomi for Ruth. My my daughter, Naomi says in verse 1, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. That's the goal. That is the one great issue that is burning in the heart and the mind of Naomi. The goodness of God has been so evident. The blessing of God has been so bountiful. The grace of God has been so conspicuous and so real. But Naomi knows, and this issue, this is the issue that burns in her heart. She knows that Ruth is still a stranger in the land. Naomi's great concern 
is that she would have security. Now, the, the, the word that's translated home in the NIV and other places it's translated other things, but the word that's translated home really means rest. That's the literal meaning of the word. And it, it carries with, the idea, with it the idea of being settled and being established. And so home is not necessarily a bad translation because home conveys the idea of being settled and established. Uh, but it's really about rest there. Um, and and though, though Ruth gained by gleaning, it's, that's not enough. She can't glean for the rest of her life. It's going to be a very short life if it's dependent upon that. So she, she needed confidence and, and assurance that she had a place among God's people. Naomi knows that she's not going to be there forever. And, and once she passes away, Ruth is just going to be a Moabite woman living in a foreign country. She has to find a place in the, in the people of God. And she knows, and that's, that's really the rest that Naomi wants for Ruth. And she knows that if and when Ruth gets that rest, then it will be well with her. And, and there, then there will, be, uh, there will be then no more uncertainty about her future. And there will be no more shadows over her life. The, the past will have been gone and dealt with. The, the clothes of mourning that she wears as a widow can finally be put away and and all that she has been carrying with her, all the burdens that, that, that she bore out of, out of Moab and all the tears and, and the loss and the grief that Moab ever meant for Ruth, all of those things will have been dealt with decisively, definitively, and finally. And Ruth will have a place among God's covenant people. That's what Naomi wants. And that's what sets the strange, intriguing events of chapter 3 in, in motion. And, and, and can I just say this? This is also uh, the fundamental issue that lies at the heart of the gospel. The, the Bible comes to us with, in the words of the gospel and in the words of Naomi and, and says, Shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? The, the only thing that can give us security, the only thing that can give us rest... And the only thing that can give us the assurance of God's blessing and, and eternal life is to find the rest that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus actually uses the, the, that word when he speaks to the Jews of his day. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, I think if there's any word that ought to resonate with the people of, of our uh, generation, it's that word rest. Because many of us, I'm not even just talking physically, but many of us just can't find rest in our culture nowadays. And the, but the kind of rest that Jesus gives, the, the longing soul, is a rest that, that brings with it fullness and security and pardon. It's, it's, it's a rest that washes away all the burdens of the past, just like it did for Ruth. It's a rest that deals finally and definitively with all that we have ever done, all that we, that we ever were that came short of the glory of God. And, and, and the peace that Jesus gives comes with the promise of security for the man or the woman who places his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that rest gives us a place with his people. So back to our story. Naomi summarizes the facts for Ruth in the passage that we just read. She points out that Boaz is their near relative. And it's interesting because Naomi 
draws Ruth in by using the plural, a kinsman of ours. Now, you know, I guess it's only technically that he's a kinsman of Ruth because of the marriage, although she's widowed now. And so, but she brought, draws her in and says, hey, this is not just about me. This is not just about you. This is us. And, and she points out the fact that Boaz will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor that evening. Now, you know, we don't use threshing floors in our uh, society uh, much anymore, if at all. But the best threshing floors in those days, and probably still true today, but they involved the uh, rock outcrops on hilltops. And, and basically, you'd have this prevailing wind that would go over the hilltop, and there would be this rock formation. And then just down a little bit below the top of the hill, there'd be a place where they'd have this, this hard floor for, for threshing, for winnowing the, the grain or whatever it might be. And, um, and the, 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 the hilltop, the, the hard surface was important because uh, that kept the grain free of dirt. And it also helped facilitate the sweeping up the grain at the end of the day. And the hilltop location was important. And that was because, uh, have you ever been on top of a hilltop where, where you know, you get, you're walking up the hill and you don't feel any breeze at all. Then suddenly you get up to the hilltop and all of a sudden there's this constant wind. Um, that's the way it is if you've ever lived in places like that. And, and so that, that breeze, that, that wind that would blow across the top of the hill was important for them because that wind... After they threshed the grain, they, were, they would take a fork or some sort of tool and they would throw that up in the air. And then the wind that's blowing across, they blow it from down below the, the tip of the, of the hill, throw it up into the wind, and the wind would catch the, the chaff, all of the extra stuff. And then the grain was heavier and wouldn't be caught in the wind. And so they'd throw it up and the wind would blow, off, blow away the chaff. And then the pure grain would fall to the ground, which... The, there's another illustration there that you can, uh, that's not even part of this story, but there's another illustration about how God tosses us at times into the wind to get rid of the chaff in our lives. But that's a different uh, story altogether. And so the, the threshing floor that they're talking about here was probably located near the field where Ruth had been gleaning and at some distance from the, from the town of Bethlehem. So let's, let's read on and see what happens. Uh, verse number three, wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let, the, let him know, talking about Boaz, don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So now without being without telling Ruth specifically that she has marriage to Boaz in mind. He, she probably figured that out, but she doesn't specifically say that. Naomi gives her daughter-in-law, Ruth, detailed instructions on how to take advantage of the situation. And, and of course, all of these actions were designed to make Ruth as attractive as possible to Boaz and, and, and to break down resistance. So first thing she told her, she said, Ruth, take a bath. Take a bath. Now that sounds funny to us and we can kind of joke about it, but you know, they didn't, they didn't take a bath every day or every other day back in those days and it was a different thing. But that was actually a normal first step in preparation for a marriage. So she says, take a bath. We want you to be as clean as possible. She's probably been out gleaning in these fields and so, you know, she's, she's, she's probably not the cleanest, it's not the cleanest moment of her life. But second, she is to apply perfume. 
This is the application of perfumed olive oil. Now, we, we need to understand this. I think we can get this. Uh, the need for perfume in their day was heightened by the hot climate in which they lived, but also by the lack of modern style deodorants to combat body odors. You know, they didn't have any, you know, any roll-on deodorant or anything like that back then. And so it, it, it just, it was a different world. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, the third thing we're told, and this is an interesting one, Ruth is, is told to put on her best clothes. That's how it's translated in the NIV. It says uh, best clothes, but that actually refers to the outer garment that covered virtually the entire body except for the head. And the, the word, uh, uh, it, it's not gender specific. The, the word uh, designated garments worn by both men and women. And, it, and what it actually refers to, and this is what I find interesting, the NIV put puts best clothes, but it really refers to everyday clothing. And according to Exodus 22, verses 25 and 26, poor people use this garment for a blanket at night. And so since Ruth was a poor person going out to, to spend the night in this field, she's going to need her blanket to keep her warm. But, and I think all of that's true, but I think there's, there's an even deeper meaning. There's, there's something deeper going on in this situation uh, what I think, what I believe is happening is that is when she said, put on your best clothes and it reads your normal clothes. I think what was taking place was that, that Naomi was advising Ruth to end her period of mourning over her widowhood and to get on with her normal life. You see, because when a, a person, when a woman became widowed, they would put on their clothing of, the, of, of grieving and they would wear their widow's clothes um, and so she was probably wearing her widow's clothes this whole time, going out and working in the field, wearing a widow's, widow's clothing. And, and so uh, maybe, and maybe that's even the reason why Boaz never made a move romantically toward Ruth, because he was an upright man and he was going to uh, respect her. He was not going to violate a woman's right to grieve the loss of her husband. He was not going to impose himself upon her until she was ready. And, and, and we don't know how long widows would customarily wear their mourning clothes. Uh, but, but it may be that Naomi is now just telling Ruth that the time has come to get rid of her garments of widowhood and to let Boaz know that she's ready to return to normal life. So it makes sense to me that she would say, put on your everyday clothes, put on your regular clothes. You need to take off your widow clothing and go see Boaz. And just by seeing the change of clothing, that, that automatically is going to communicate something to Boaz. Do you see that? Because he's going to say, oh, she doesn't have her widow, widow outfit on anymore. And so, um, so anyway, the fourth thing she's told, Ruth is to go down to the threshing floor where Boaz is working and where he, he's going to spend the night. Now, this is different, unusual because normally landowners and the field workers would go out in the fields early in the morning and they would return at dusk. But it seems that at the winnowing time, after harvest is done, that it was different, that an exception was made. And, and it seems as if that the men would sleep at the threshing floors in order to guard the fruits of their hard labor against thieves, against animals. That was the harvest. If they lose the harvest, they're in trouble. And so the men would just stay out there all night long while they're doing this threshing time, this winnowing time. And so Naomi cautions Ruth not to let Boaz know that she's come until she's finished, until he's finished eating and drinking and, and he's laying down for the night. 
And, and I'll say this, although uh, Boaz's drinking probably included an alcoholic beverage, our passage here makes no mention whatsoever, makes, it makes no uh, uh, inference of him getting drunk at all or of engaging in any actions that he would not have done as a sober person. Let's keep going. Number five, uh, lurking incognito, hiding in the shadows, off in the edges of the camp, near the threshing floor. Ruth is to observe carefully where Boaz finally lies down. Now that's important because you don't want to go up to the wrong guy, right? So she, she says, pay attention to where he lays down. You don't want to do this. Go to the wrong person. That could be really bad. Next, Ruth is to, and this is where it gets unusual for us, um, Ruth is to uncover his feet and then lie down next to him herself. Now, now I'll say the, the word that's translated feet there, actually in other places it's, it refers to the legs, basically almost from the waist down, but not all the way, but, but it refers to the legs. But, and, and when you read that, there is a line of interpretation more and more there's some more uh, later scholars that, that begin to th wonder about this, but they, they begin to, um, they treat this uh, command of, of Naomi to do this as, as something, as to engage in something risque or, you know, in seductive behavior. And in this culture context, at, at, at winnowing time, the threshing floor often became a place of, of illicit sexual behavior. And, and so some people interpret Naomi's words as having strong sexual, sexual connotations. But let me say, th this overtly sexual interpretation of Naomi's directions, uh, seem, it's, it reads far more into the text than what the text says. Because that's not what it says. That's not what it infers at all. Uh, there is no suggestion in Naomi's tone or intention that her words should be interpreted sexually. And as we read the story, what took place... There's absolutely no reason to think that anything, uh, uh, anything immoral took place at all in this whole situation. And, and, and in fact, this, that interpretation just literally runs roughshod over the, the author of Ruth's characterization of, of, the, of the character of both Ruth and Boaz. Because Ruth, I mean, she's described as a noble woman and he's described as a virtuous person and and it wouldn't make any sense to describe them that way if they're going to engage in something that is, that is explicitly uh, commanded uh, to your, in, the, in the law to avoid. So it doesn't make any sense. I feel like to read it that way just completely disregards everything that the book says about them being people who honor God. And so I don't think that's the case at all. What's really happening is Ruth needs long-term protection and support the kind that only a husband can provide. And she needs to be married to a, an, an Israeli man so that she can be part of God's covenant people. So she has this place of rest and she doesn't have to worry. That's what Naomi wants. And, and the truth is, taking any kind of action that could be interpreted in, an, in a sexual manner would actually run the risk of losing everything that she hoped to gain. Because if she went there and tried to do something overt to a righteous man, he's going to say, well, whew, this is not the kind of woman I want for a wife. And so it's going to work against her. All right, seventh, and here's where, where it comes. Ruth is to wait for further instructions from Boaz. Naomi says, he'll know what to do. 
And, and in saying this, Naomi expresses uh, remarkable confidence in Boaz to, to take the matter from there. And, and further, I feel like it's more than that. I feel like she's placing her, her faith in God to guide Boaz in making an appropriate response. Well, you know, the, the delicacy of the scheme is, is obvious to anybody looking at this and the potential for disaster is extreme. This could go very, very wrong. You know, showing up in the middle of the night, if he doesn't interpret what Naomi is telling her to do correctly, this could be a really bad situation. And, and, and from a human perspective, Naomi seems to be taking a huge gamble uh, that, that, Bo, Bo, that Boaz may not interpret this series of nonverbal gestures with the meaning that she intends. And the effectiveness, effectiveness of her plan is measured by the extent to which Boaz understands the meaning of what Ruth is doing. I mean, think about this, though. This is a, this is a, a very tenuous at best plan. What are the chances that Boaz would wake up in, an, and in a state of grogginess in the dead of night, in the darkness of night, notice that Ruth, Ruth was no longer dressed in her garments of widowhood, but in normal garments? This is a big chance. What, what are the chances that he would overlook the irregularities of the situation and respond favorably? Because there are a lot of irregularities here. Uh, first of all, a woman proposing to a man in their culture, that's very irregular. So that could be a cause for him to be offended and push her away. You also have a younger person proposing to an older person. And, and in, in our culture, we don't understand the, the structure of honor that uh, where, where an older person is, is, is treated with great honor and deference and you let the older person take the lead. You also have a, a, a field worker, a gleaner in the field, proposing to a field owner. So you've got class issues there. And you, on top of that, now you, you have an alien, a, a Moabite woman proposing to an Israelite. So there's a lot of irregularities here that any one of those could make Boaz say, well, wait a minute, this is not right. I should be the one, if I'm going to want to marry you, I'll let you know. But Naomi's faith is strong. And she has, she has confidence in Boaz's integrity. And, and apparently, I believe, she has confidence in the hidden hand of God to govern Boaz's reactions when he awakes. She believes that if Ruth does this with the right, in the right way, with the right attitude, that God is going to take care of it. And, and Ruth's faith seems to be equal to that of her mother-in-law because she gives herself wholly to this crazy plan. She says, I'll do it. I mean, it's like somebody came to you with some crazy idea, you know, and, like, and they're like, do this, this, and this, and this, I think this is what will happen. And it's just somewhere out there, and it's so risky. And then you look at them, and somehow you just have faith in your heart, and you're like, okay, I'll do it. That's Ruth. Let's read what happened. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing hold, Ruth did, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, excuse me, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow 
townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. All right, so Ruth made good on her promise to Naomi and did everything exactly as she had been instructed. Almost. Almost everything exactly. You'll see what I mean in a moment. First, she did what, he, she, what she was told. She watched, <clears throat> she watched Boaz eat. She watched him drink until he was in good spirits. Now, no doubt that, you know, that Boaz was satisfied with the work that had been accomplished that day. And, and as I said earlier, there's no reason to interpret that this, this was a, a, any kind of drunken stupor. It wasn't anything like that. Um, the, the author just merely paints a picture of a, of a man at peace within himself and in harmonious step with the world that is yielding its fruit as a result of Yahweh's blessings and his hard work. So second, then, she watched him leave the supper and go lie down at the far end of the heap of, of the threshed grain. Third, so far everything is, is normal. This is exactly how she was told. Ruth approached Boaz while he was sleeping, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Just everything is exactly the way Naomi said. Well, Boaz woke up in the middle of the night. And in NIV translated, it says that, he, that startled. The word translated startled in NIV literally means that he shivered. Well, this is what I think. Because there's, been a, there's a lot of speculation. And, and there, there, you can read all kinds of commentators who have their ideas of what it means to uncover the feet and all this kind of stuff. And they have their ideas. And my ideas are no worse or no, no better than theirs. So here's what I think. I think maybe that's why Naomi wanted Ruth to uncover his feet because she wanted Boaz to wake up in the middle of the night so this encounter could take place in the middle, in the, in the, in under darkness and by uncovering his feet. Anybody ever here, have you been sleeping at night, like on a winter's night, and, and uh, somehow your covers got kicked off your feet or your bottom part of your legs and you wake up because of the cold? I, th I think that's what happened. I think that was Naomi's plan. She knew it was going to be chilly out there. And if you uncover him, he's going to wake up because he's going to say, man, I'm freezing. I got to get this, this blanket back on me. And, and so uh, 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 they, they, I think this is Naomi's plan. And she wanted it done under cover of darkness because under the cover of darkness, there'd be no shame or embarrassment if things didn't go the way that Naomi hoped. But, but I think he probably woke up because of the, the chilling of the night air and and then you know, I just picture him, he's groping for his blanket, you know, trying to get things rearranged. And all of a sudden, he's just surprised to find someone lying at his feet. And, and he, he recognizes that it's a woman, and he says, who are you? You know, I mean, this is, can you imagine this moment? It's, it's like kind of freak you out, you know. It's like, why, who are you? Why is a woman laying at my feet? Why are my feet uncovered? What is going on here? Well, Ruth answered the question very forthrightly. Forthrightly, she said, "I am your servant, Ruth." All right. Now, so far, everything is exactly how Naomi said to do it. But then Ruth goes into something, and she says something that Naomi never told her to say. Ruth said, "Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer." 
Naomi didn't say anything about saying anything like that. But Ruth, she's smart. She's figured out what's going on. She knows what Naomi's uh, idea is and what she's trying to accomplish here. And what we don't understand is what, uh, if, if we don't understand the weight of that, of what's going on there, we don't understand how bold a statement that really was. Because let, let me just start by saying this. When God called his people Israel into existence, because she mentioned kinsman redeemer. When God called his people Israel into existence, he established them as his own family. And the ordinances of his law made provision for their blessing, even when they encountered distress or failure or difficulty or tragedy. And, and, and thus, among the institutions of the law is that of the family obligation to safeguard its members. And, and particularly with respect to two central elements of the Abrahamic covenant, that is the continuation of the family and the enjoyment of the promised land. And, it, and if someone in the family fell into need, then a close family member was expected to volunteer to help to become that person's redeemer, the family redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. Now, God describes himself as the redeemer of his people, but, but God creates his people to be his image, to reflect who he is, right? And so his covenant with them as their redeemer, when they were in bondage and need, placed an obligation on them to redeem the needy. Thus, in the case of a loss of life by, by murder, a kinsman redeemer would be the family member who would seek justice. And if a family member found himself in such debt that he sold himself into slavery, the kinsman redeemer would pay the, 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 the debt off to redeem him. If, if a family property was mortgaged in one way or another, again, Part of, the, part of the central elements of the law that God wrote in for the families was, was the enjoyment of the promised land and the continuation of the family. And those two things are close together. So if the family property was mortgaged in one way or another, then, then the kinsman redeemer would, re, would pay off the debt and regain it for the family. So when she specifically says, and, and she says, uh, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She is invoking this whole idea of saying, I need redeeming. I want you to do it. That's a bold statement for her to make. She, there's no record that there's any kind of conversation before this about any of these, these uh, issues with Boaz. So this is completely out of the blue to Boaz. And, and, and it's a bold statement because instead of letting Boaz tell her what to do, like Naomi said, Ruth speaks and tells, tells Boaz what he wants her to, what she wants him to do. She says, as, essentially, she says, marry me as an act of redemption. Naomi's family, my uh, husband who's passed away, the, 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 the lands of the family, it all needs redeeming. And it can all be done if you'll marry me. Marry me as an act of redemption. So this is, this is not just merely a marriage proposal for Ruth's sake, but it's for the sake of Naomi, uh, and it's for the sake of her family, for her husband who had passed away. So that, that's a bold statement already for her to bring that up directly to him. You know, it, it, like asking him to do it. She, he, he didn't, she didn't leave it to him to, set, to come up with the idea. Hey, you know what? I got an idea. I'm a kinsman redeemer. I'm a near kinsman, so let me do this. 
She brought it up. But there's another part of the statement that deserves some attention because the phrase, spread the corner of your garment over me, the, the actual literal translation of that is to spread one's wings over. Now, this is why that matters. Because what Ruth is doing, she's actually echoing the, the very language that Boaz himself used when he spoke to Ruth earlier uh, about coming to, to shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Only now she's speaking it in the context where it has obvious reference to the covenant bond of marriage. Let me read it to you what, she, what he said to her in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. He's talking about how she has taken care of Naomi. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's saying, I'm praying for God's blessing on you that under his wings you'll find refuge. It, it, you know what it's like? It's as if Ruth is saying to Boaz, Boaz, will you become the answer to your own prayer? Will you, will you prayed for me to be blessed to come under the wings of the Almighty. Will you be the answer to that prayer and provide that place of refuge? It's beautiful how she pulls that back in there. Ruth is requesting that Boaz take her under his wing and assume responsibility for her security. It's a bold, bold moment on Ruth's part. Ruth, I mean, think about this. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, and Ruth may be feeling a little desperate because her, her prospects for finding a husband in Israel are pretty slim. I mean, they really are. If Ruth had taken out a personal ad in, the, in Bethlehem's uh, local newspaper, it would be unlikely to attract much interest, you know, because it would be like single Moabite woman, widowed, childless with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessmen with view to marriage. You know, must love mother-in-law. You know, that's be, you know, you're not going to get a lot of people responding to that ad. She just didn't have anything to offer, really, to, to anybody else. So this is a very extraordinary speech, this little statement she makes. It's short, but very, very extraordinary. But you know what? Boaz's response to Ruth's actions and to her proposition are also remarkable because Instead of cursing her, instead of getting angry and saying, what is your problem? Man, I can't believe how forward you are. What is your, what's the deal? Who do you think you are? Instead, he blesses her. Boaz praises Ruth for her remarkable demonstration of kindness. What, what kindness is he talking about? He's referring to her appearing on the threshing floor to ask him to marry her. He's saying, he's saying uh, you know, listen, I know there are a lot younger men than me. And you could have gone to younger men, whether rich or poor. He said, there are a lot of eligible men out there. And yet you've come to me to say, I want you. I want, I want you to be this person. And he's, he's blessed by that. And so he, in response, promised Ruth to do for her everything that she had asked. And that remarkable declaration completes really a reversal of roles uh, that, that we had at the beginning of Ruth's speech because Ruth started off by saying, uh, this, is, I'm Ruth, this is Ruth, I'm Ruth, your servant girl, your, your servant girl Ruth. And now he declares that he's the servant of Ruth. He says, I will do what you ask. However, then Boaz brings in a complication. Now, the fact that he was ready with this complication 
kind of tells me that maybe he had been thinking about this possibility because it wasn't just like something off, the, you know, this is not the kind of fact that you would know just off the cuff. It seems to me like he had thought some about it because he, he, he's by his own integrity, he could have easily just, just ignored what it, the, the laws were, but he's forced to report that he is indeed a kinsman redeemer, but he is not the kinsman redeemer. In other words, he's not the closest relative. There's another man who actually has the first right to marry Ruth and to redeem the name of her husband, of her, of her dead husband, to restore the lands to her family and to give her the security she needs. And so he said, and the fact that he was, he knew that right off the cop, right off the cuff tells me that maybe he had already thought about this some and thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I could be the kinsman redeemer, but I don't see how it could work out because there's this other guy you know, because we know from last chapter that Boaz noticed Ruth, right? Remember that? Uh, we, we know that. But Boaz offers her words of reassurance and he advises her. He says, listen, you need to spend the night here. It's not safe for her to travel home at that hour of night. Uh, but he assures Ruth that he will deal with this issue right away the next day when they get up in the morning. And, he, and he's determined to redeem Ruth if she becomes available to him. But being a man of integrity, he is determined to abide by the nation's legal and social customs. In other words, he wants to do this, but he's going to do things the right way. He, 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 no cutting of corners, no gaming the system, no secret deals, no pretending. Everything's out front. Everything's in the open with, with righteousness and integrity. He says, yes, I want to do this, but if this is going to happen, if we're going to get married... We're going to do it the right way. And listen, let me tell you something. If, I, I, if, I, if anything I would tell young people who are, uh, when, they, when they're con considering marriage or when they're talking about marriage, I would just tell them, listen, don't cut corners. Do it the right way because that builds the strongest foundation. That builds the strongest foundation. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And, and he said... Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's looking out for her reputation there because we know that bad things sometimes happen at the threshing floor and he didn't want people t making up stuff and talking about her. Uh, ver verse 15, he, he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. So Ruth lay back down for the remainder of the night in the wake of their conversation, I have a feeling that neither Ruth nor Boaz slept a whole lot that night. You know, I'm sure that there was a little bit of adrenaline going. Boaz is probably preoccupied with plans for resolving the case in the morning and maybe feeling a little anxious over whether or not he was going to be able to actually gain the right to Ruth's hand because he really wants to marry her. He's, he's fallen in love over these, this several, you know, uh, six weeks to three months time period. He's fallen in love. He wants to marry her, but he doesn't know if he's going to be able to work it out. And, and now he knows for sure she wants to marry him. And so I'm sure there's a lot going on in his mind. And, 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 and there's no doubt that those same issues were going on in Ruth's mind as well. But she also had the added concern of getting away unnoticed in the morning. She didn't want to, you know, so... In order to preserve her reputation, she'd need to be gone before anyone could recognize her. So, so she got up before dawn and prepared to leave. 
And by now, Boaz is awake, if he slept at all, you know, but he's awake for sure at that point in time. And, and under this dark sky, he initiated a second converse, conversation and he, he supported her efforts to get away without being noticed. But, uh, but maintaining in this process, this lavish generosity that he had demonstrated towards Ruth, uh, he, he sent her off with another substantial gift of food. And at, at this, Ruth departs. And Boaz returns to town. So let's read what happens next. We'll finish up with this. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? When she told her, then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Well, you know what? I think... Ruth and Boaz were probably deprived of sleep that night, but I have no doubt that Naomi probably didn't get a lot of sleep either. Because she's probably at home like, oh, I hope it's going well. I don't know what's going to happen. So she probably lay awake all night wondering how her daughter-in-law was faring. And as soon as she sees Ruth in the morning, she says, how did it go? Tell me all about it. And so Ruth tells Naomi uh, about everything that had transpi transpired that night and Ruth explains to Naomi that Boaz had sent the grain so she wouldn't go home empty-handed to her mother-in-law, which was probably a sign of good faith. He probably specifically mentioned Naomi, the mother-in-law, because he knows that Naomi has the obligation to, to take care of Ruth uh, as, far as, as far as the, the mother-in-law mother taking care of the widowed daughter-in-law. And so he... he, he may have been expressing his determination to carry through with his promise and, and, and to try to gain the, the, uh, his promise to try to gain the right to marry Ruth. And, and also that if he could not, because he said, he said, listen, if, if, if the other guy wants to do it, there's nothing I can do about that. And, if, and at least you'll be redeemed. Uh, and so he said, if I can't do it, I'm going to make sure that your primary kinsman redeemer takes care of his responsibilities. But you, he basically said to Ruth, you're going to have a place. I want it to be with me, but you're going to have a place. And since Naomi was Ruth's legal guardian, he, he may have intended the, uh, intended the grain as a, as a down payment of what's called a mohar. Uh, it's a bridal price paid at the time of betrothal, sort of, sort of like a dowry, but not exactly like that. But the, the groom often gave the mohar at the time of betrothal, and it was not as a purchase price, but as a as a promise to prepare for the wedding in good faith, and also as a pledge for, for the good behavior of the groom toward the bride in the meantime. And I think Naomi's, Naomi's response probably indicates that that's how she accepted it. And then she urges Ruth. She just says, Ruth, all right, you've done everything you can do. Now it's time to relax and wait. And just wait and see how it turns out. And that's the part that when we read that and we face those moments in our lives that becomes so difficult for us. We just don't like to wait. One of, the, one of the lessons we learn from Ruth is that when we have done all that we can do, we have to learn to sit back and wait on God. But we don't like waiting. Is there anybody here you enjoy waiting? Anybody here like it when you have to stand in line? <laughs> if you do, you need to get help right away because something's not wired right in you. Uh, but, but we don't like writing, but, 
But God encourages us to wait on Him, doesn't He? And the reason He does that is because we have to learn that God's timing is just as important as God's will. See, we get, we get this thing in our mind and we think, I know what God wants me to do. And we sometimes assume that means He wants me to do all of it right now. But that's not always the case. There's a waiting period where we wait for God to fulfill His will in the right time. I'm going to uh, uh, tell you a short story from, from early in my ministry. Um, I graduated from Bible college uh, it was right after the Civil War ended. No, it was actually 1985. 1985. And uh, which, you know, get, it's getting further and further back. And uh, I, I went on staff at a church and I was there for, oh, um, for, for a, over a year. Probably, I think it was about a year and a half, something like that. Maybe a little bit more than that. Well, things, things didn't end very well there. It was a bad situation uh, when I left, and and uh, and I, it was it really caused a great deal of pain. And in fact, I had in my mind had said to myself, "If this is what it means to be in ministry, I don't want any part of it," um, because of, of what happened. And it wasn't anybody's part fault in particular. I'm not going to go into the details of that. But long story short, a- after that, uh, there was a period of about six months where God began to work on healing me. And in that process, uh, through these times of, uh, 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 he, he began to work in my life and three of my friends' lives. And, and we, were, we were all, we would meet after work. We all were working a swing shift from like three in the afternoon to midnight, which is the worst shift in the world, if you ask me. I'd rather work a graveyard than that because when you're, especially when you're a young person, because all your other friends they're getting off work when you're going to work. And then when you get off work, they're all asleep. And then when you get up, they're all going to work. You know, it's just, it's just a mess. It's just a terrible shift. I don't like it. But that's neither here nor there. But after we got off work, we would always go over and meet at my friend John Meyer's house. And, uh, and he, uh, we would just gather there and wait. we would just pray. And God was just doing some phenomenal things in our lives. And we would stay there at times. We'd be praying till 2 o'clock in the morning at times just God was doing some phenomenal things and so during that whole time period of six months or so uh, during well not not the full six months but four months in or so probably uh, my desire to fulfill my calling was coming back and I was like I, I just I got to get back in the ministry I'm just not doing what I was called to do this is not what I, I was working at a printing company Nothing wrong with working at a printing company unless you're called to do something different. And so I began to, to get in the, you know, this desire to come, came, get back into ministry. And I don't even know how I heard it, but I heard from somebody, I think I heard, I think it was from the pastor that I had worked with before, but um, I had heard that the, that the Assembly of God Church in Dodge City, Kansas was looking for a youth pastor. And, 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 you know, it was a season in my life where I just felt so in tune with God that as soon as I heard that, and some of you know what I'm talking about, something clicked and I knew in my spirit, I knew God was telling me, you're going to Dodge City. So I got excited and I 
So I got a piece of paper out and all it took was one paper, double, triple spaced and got my resume together because it's very short. You know, when you've been at one church, it's like, here's, here's my resume. And I sent it in there and I was waiting and I waited with expectation because I was like, I know this is the place God has for me. I know this is the place. And I was, I was so confident of that. And so anyway, I sent that in, in August. And, um, and I was just waiting. And finally, I got a call. Um, actually, I didn't get a call. I got a letter from the church in Dodge City. And the letter said, thank you for your interest. Uh, but we've decided to fill the position with somebody from within the church body. And I was just crushed. I was like, I don't get this. Apparently, I cannot hear God. I thought I could hear God, but apparently I couldn't because I thought for sure he told me I was going to Dodge City, Kansas. And now I got a letter saying, nope, we filled it with somebody else. And I was like, I don't get this, God. And I was really, really struggling with it and, and wrestled with God that whole week long. Then on that next Sunday morning, there was a, a, a word given in the church. And of course, we know, I believe that the the first Corinthians 12 and 14 talks about the gifts of the spirit and, and the gifts of the spirit can are in operation in today's world. And, and, uh, but, but like a, for example, a gift of prophecy is a word spoken to the ch church at large, but there are sometimes personal applications that you'll hear. I also want to say this very clearly that anytime one of those is given, it's always subject to the authority of the word of God. Uh, a word spoken to you, a prophecy or whatever it might be, does not have the same authority as the written word of God because it's all subject to that. Anything anybody ever says that's contrary to the word of God, you can, you can mark it down. That's not from God. All right. So anyway, but, but this woman who I greatly, greatly admired her walk with the Lord in the middle of the service, she, she spoke, started her deal and, and said something along, the lines of, along, along these lines. It said, first words, you have wrestled with me on this, and I have said no. Well, I can, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I was like, hmm, this sounds like my week. And it went on basically and said, and just said, you know, you have to just trust me that I'm, I'm at work, I'm going to do what I'm going to do when I want to do and this sort of thing. And I repented before God and said, Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I'm not going to get all up in arms that I misheard you. I know you're going to open the right door at the right time. And so I'll just wait. I'll just trust you. And so I went back and kept going. Well, remember when I said I was going to make a long story short? That's not happening, is it? Um, the, uh, anyway, that, so then we went through the rest of September. And then uh, we, we were still meeting every day to pray together, going into, into October and, uh, and, and one night after I got off work, I got to John's house and John and I were the first ones there. We were waiting for the other two guys to show up and they were, they were going to be running a little later than us. And so we were just sitting there talking because God was doing something new every day. And so every day we would sit and say, we'd share what God was doing. And so we're sitting there and John starts telling me about some of the things that had happened and for him, because he'd been going through some stuff and God was really doing some miracles in his life. Uh, getting things straightened out. And, and then he said, but wait, here's the best part. And he said, uh, he said, uh, there was a message on my answering machine when I got home. He said, your mom called and the church in Dodge City called 
and wanted to know if you were still interested. And, and I, I just started weeping at that moment. And I was like, what had, what had happened was the month before, the church had looked at their finances and said, we don't think we can afford to hire a staff member. Then September was the best year financially in the history of the church. And they said, well, maybe we can. And then they called to see if I was still open. What was that all about? That was God trying to teach me very early on in my ministry, don't get in front of me. Don't run in front of me. Wait on me because my timing is just as important as my will. It's important to know what God is calling you to do. It's important to know his will. But it's also important to wait for him to fulfill his will and not to try to manipulate the situation and make something happen. God's timing is as important as his will, which is why we have to learn, like Ruth, to sit back and wait and see what God does. That's what we have to do. Don't get ahead of God. He knows what he's doing. And he knows when things need to be done. And it's not only for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the, 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 the fact that, Lord God, that you're at work in us and that we, you, you reveal your will and you, you work and we see these things and we want the, everything that you have for us. But God, just teach us to, to learn to wait, to not run ahead of you. And those times when, God, when we need to just be silent and tarry like they did in the upper room for, for so many weeks, so many days, they waited and waited and waited until the promise of God came. Abraham waited for 25 plus years before the promise of God came. Teach us, Lord, that waiting is not um, a lack of faith. Waiting is not the problem. It's running ahead. Abraham got into trouble when he tried to make the promise come, uh, come about through the, through the womb of Hagar. Lord, don't, don't let us give birth to Ishmael's in our lives by running ahead. And I pray, God, that you would teach us to wait. And in that waiting process, Lord God, that you would, you would develop the, the patience and, the, and the, uh, the, the strength of character that we need when the time comes, Lord, for you to fulfill your will. And we give you thanks for all of it. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.